Thank you, Penelope, and good morning, everyone. Um, well worth having that reading open, page 830, if you've got a church Bible in front of you, Matthew chapter 5, and um, we're, we're really zooming in on verses 13 to 16 today. We'll touch on 17 to 20 a little bit, and then more uh, next week as well. Um, this is what we're thinking about uh, throughout uh, this month as we lead up to the Vision Dinner. This is... Uh, our goal for the year ahead and beyond to let the light shine um, and you see that picture there there's actually a, a there's a cool little feature on that picture which I'm just going to encourage you to find for yourself uh, just focus on the lantern in the middle and the hand holding the lantern uh, let's just say it's value-added uh, I'll leave I'll leave you with that. I shouldn't have drawn your attention to it because now you'll just focus on that uh, the whole time uh, yeah anyone got it yet yeah. Anyway, enjoy that. Um, it was pointed out to me this week. Um, uh, this is our goal. Let the light shine. That's our, um, our vision uh, for the year ahead, to be a church that is a light to the, um, to the community around us. As we do that, oh, and to see, this is, see, see what I've started. <laughs> um, maybe we should get rid of that picture. No, I like that. I like that picture. You'll see why. Um, uh, we, there, it's gone. Oh, it's back. Um, this is going to be a long morning, isn't it? Um, we're, we're in the business as a church family uh, of homecoming. Uh, that's what we're about as a church, having come home to God as our Heavenly Father ourselves by the very great mercy of King Jesus. Um, we now are swept up in the same mission that our King continues to have in this world, and that is to draw others uh, to God as their Heavenly Father. It's why, if you, uh, if you might have noticed at Christmas or at the Christmas uh, fair when we had a stall down there, or um, uh, perhaps at Swashbucklers, uh, a number of the shirts that we have to sort of welcome those who are new uh, to our church, emblazoned on the back of them are, are these words, Meet Jesus, Find a Home. Uh, in five words, that's really our mission as a church. That's our invitation. We want people to meet Jesus, their King, meet the mercy that he has to offer them, uh, meet the salvation that he has to offer them and come home to God as their Father. And we're about that mission because that is what glorifies our God, having people know him as Father and relate to him as Father. Uh, throughout uh, the Sundays in February, we're, we're setting a direction to travel as a church. And, and I want us to see that the who and the why of this place is bound up in that homecoming task, that welcoming others home. And to see that, we're going to zoom in on these verses, chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. I hope you've got it open there in front of you. When it, when it comes to thinking about the who and the why of the Christian life or life as a church, over the centuries, churches have had a number of different takes on that, different answers to it, uh, as to why the church exists. Uh, here's some examples. Sometimes in history, the church has seen its role as the moral police of the world. Um, our job is to be a conscience for a society that's decaying in, in lots of ways, and our job is to seek to preserve society from that moral decay by holding up the, the plans and the purposes and the ways of God. And that's true in part, isn't it? But if that's the heart of our why as a church, then we've not heard King Jesus. Uh, here's another example. Over the years, sometimes the church has seen its role as, as almost like an escape pod 
from the world. Here is a place to sort of huddle together away from the world and the, the brokenness of the world, a, a Christian bubble, if you like. And, and again, that's true in part. And there's something hugely encouraging for me anyway to gather with God's people uh, and the encouragement of brothers and sisters when lots in the world will discourage me as a follower of the Lord Jesus. There's, there's truth in that. But if that's all we think we are, then we've not heard King Jesus. Uh, another one, and I see this more and more in our present time, sometimes the church thinks uh, its purpose in the world is to be like a chameleon. Uh, to sort of adapt and change as the world changes, to sort of blend in with the world uh, as much as possible to the priorities of the world and the principles of the world uh, in order to survive, which turns out to be a fast track to extinction. Um, there's some of the ways the world has sort of seen itself uh, over the years. But here's the thing. We don't actually have to guess the who and the why of this place. Jesus makes it clear. Have a look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Uh, Jesus driving there at our purpose as Christians and as a church. And he does it in the context of if, if you look at the verses just before it, verses 10 to 12, he does it in the context of giving the first disciples who are hearing these words from him full disclosure about what it's going to be like to be people of the king, to live in his kingdom. If you read verses 10 to 12, the full disclosure is this. It's going to be really hard. Uh, it's going to be uh, a situation where you will face opposition and persecution and trouble because you are people of the king. But having given them that disclosure, he then starts speaking of purpose. Verse 13 again, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now I said there he's driving at our purpose, but we're not quite at the purpose yet, are we? Look closely, have a look at what he actually says in verse 13 and 14. Here's what he doesn't say, be salt. Try to be salty. Uh, and then verse 14, be light. Be, be light. As if, you know, try hard to be light. Truth is, Jesus is not actually commanding a purpose here, is he? He's declaring an identity. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I think the key to us understanding our purpose as the people of King Jesus, is first to understand who we already are because of the mercy of King Jesus. Our purpose will only be clear when we see that who we are. So look at who he declares us to be. Firstly, these two images he gives us. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And for each of these images, here's what we're going to do. Uh, quite simple. We're going to look at what it's not, what it doesn't mean, uh, what it is, <laughs> and the implications for our world and for ourselves. Firstly, what it doesn't mean. Uh, here's the problem with these two word pictures that Jesus gives us. These are some of the most well-known verses in the whole of the Bible. Uh, these idea of the church being salt and, and light. And, and more than that, the other problem is that we import into them our own understandings of these words. Like salt is such a common word, isn't it? Uh, and so we import that into our understanding what Jesus is saying. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, to describe someone as uh, that, that guy, that woman is the salt of the earth. 
uh, we mean by that, you know, they're reliable, they're trustworthy, they're, they're, they're decent people. Uh, is that what Jesus is saying? You are the decent people of the world. Uh, or another one, and this is quite common as we look at these verses, is to think of salt and its purposes in our lives. There's one member of my uh, family who will remain nameless who sees salt as the way to make food palatable. <laughs> Uh, so everything gets salt on it and large quantities of salt on it and uh, it makes the bland less bland, less boring. And, and so sometimes that's how it's been read and understood. Uh, you're the interesting and the distinct and the engaging, not bland parts of the world. All of that is true, but not what Jesus is driving at. Uh, think with me what he's doing here. He is Jew Jesus is a Jewish man. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, both of whom are soaked in the Old Testament scriptures. And that's actually where we must go to understand what Jesus is driving at as he declares this. Uh, you see, again and again in the Old Testament, um, salt is used to do, as a metaphor, or if you like, for God's commitment to his promises. Uh, remember, we thought about God's promises to Abraham and to David uh, last week. Well, again and again in the Old Testament, he talks about the salt of his promise. Um, listen to this. I'll give you one example. Uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 13, verse 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Uh, salt there refers to the permanence of God's promises, the, the goodness of God's promises, that they, they, they last, they, they, they're forever promises. Uh, the old promise to Abraham that we saw that was handed down to David and is now fulfilled in, well, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus, it's the salt of his covenant, his covenant of salt. And so in Matthew 5, what Jesus is doing is he's turning to this, well, just a handful of hilltop nobodies, and in a world that has rejected God, he's saying this, where on earth do you think you can see God's forever faithfulness to his promises in a world like this? And he turns to them and he says, it's you. You are evidence of God's covenant of salt remaining. You are the salt of the earth. And this has implications for our world and it has implications for us as a church. Firstly, our world, and we saw this last week, the reality of our world, because of its living under the judgment of God for rejecting him as king, this is a world broken down and decaying. That's the truth of it. A world under the shadow of death because of that foolish rejection of God as king. But where in a world like that can hope be found? It's not going to be, as we saw last week in Psalm 33, in the size of our armies that we can muster. It's not going to be in the strength that we can muster. It's none of those things. All of that will fail us. The world's only hope in the end is God's persevering commitment to the earth. Our only hope is that he has made a covenant of salt, a forever promise that nothing will prevent. And so I want to say to us, as we gather here this morning as Warunga Church, Hear this well. Where in this world is there evidence that this is not a vain hope, but a permanent and a present reality? He is talking about you. He's talking about the youth that gathered here on Friday night. 
He's talking about the kids and youth that are gathered in the different rooms uh, as, as we meet in here right now. He's talking about the small groups that many of us will be in this week. He's talking about the 60 people who gathered on Wednesday night to pray to this God who has proved faithful to us. Uh, he's talking about us right here and right now. And he turns to us and he says, you are the soul of the earth. You are the soul. Here's his other picture. Have a look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. Again, this same pattern, firstly, what it's not. And again, I think often when this is looked at, this passage, it's an encouragement for us to be distinct and stand out from the crowd and interesting and engaging as a church. Now, all of those things are good, good plans, but it's not Jesus' point. And again, we have to go to the Old Testament to see what he is driving at. In the Old Testament, God's promise is actually to bring light or the light of his salvation, more literally, not just to Israel, his people that came from Abraham, but the whole world. I wonder if you heard it in, in the other reading that Penelope read for us. Listen to this verse, such a great verse from Isaiah 49. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you see what God is doing through the light? Again, Jesus turns to these sort of hilltop nobodies from nowhere in a world that has rejected him, in a world of need, in need of rescue. And he says, where in the world is there evidence that God can and does save? You are the light of the world. And again, this has implications for our world and for our church. That God is promising here a light of salvation to come to the world is for an obvious and inescapable reason. It's because our world is in darkness. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 describes that darkness like this. It says, our minds towards God are darkened. Our hearts are hard. We're, we're, we're estranged from God. That's the crisis of this world. The darkness of that and the darkness of the judgment that comes because of that, of living life under the shadow of death, that's the cloud over us. And here, here is a world that looks for light in all sorts of places. Uh, there's the light of progress that we rely on, political progress or economic progress or social progress, that that's going to lead us. Or, or the light of our power or ability to control things. And you see that in the present in all sorts of ways. That our power to control the environment is our hope for the future. Our power to sort of name our own identity, that's, that's key. Or the power of our philosophy, that's human light. To choose our own truth, our own meaning. But all of these things, the scriptures tell us, keep leave us, leaving us stumbling in the dark. They're lights that cannot save the lights that have no answer to the shadow of death. But here's our gospel. Jesus, our saviour and king, is, well, in the words of John 8, verse 12, the light of life to a world under the sentence of death. He delivers on this old promise. He is this light for the nations. And, and again, hear this well, because this is important as we think about who we are in this place. Where in our world is there evidence that the light can save? Jesus' answer is, you are the light of the world. This gathering, this church is evidence of his light at work in our world, even here in 2024. And he doesn't speak these words of you are salt and you are light to sort of puff us up with our own self-importance because uh, we're not salt or light because of ourselves. It, it comes from the king. It comes from his mercy. 
but, and this is where we move from the who to the why of this place, put simply, our job is to be who we are. You see there, verse 16, you are the light of the world, and then verse 16, let the light shine. Your faith in King Jesus, the mercy you have received from him, the blessings that he's poured out on you, they're not some sort of insurance policy to sort of stuff into your pocket because they're going to be handy at the end. They will be, I promise, but uh, that's not the purpose. Your purpose is to live out your identity in this world. You are light, so shine. And over the next two weeks, we'll, we'll consider together how we might do that as a church. But uh, just for today, I want to lay the foundation with what you see there in verse 16. How do we fulfill our purpose? Here it is, verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why shine? Why live out this purpose? Do you see why? Before others, that's why. The purpose of being the light of the world is not to have some sort of internal light that makes us feel warm and alight as a church. That's not the point. It's a light for those outside in the dark. The gospel is for others, not just us. And you see why? End of that verse, the purpose of them seeing that light. Verse 16, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That's the why of this place that others may glorify God as Father. Why is that our purpose? Well, let me give you three quick answers. They're all connected. Here's the first reason, that glorifying God as Father is the purpose of our existence as a church. It's because it was never about our glory. Although that's the constant danger for Christians and churches, isn't it? That they would see our good deeds and will glorify us. That's not the point. Here's the second answer, and it flows from that. It is because God is glorious. And he is worthy of praise. And in fact, the whole purpose of human life is to know him as that. And the great sin of humanity is to neither glorify him nor give him thanks. So what God is doing through us as the light is to lead people to live as, well, they were always meant to live. But here's the third part of the answer, and it's my favorite. Do you see the end of the verse there, the last word, or the last couple of words? So that others may glorify God as Father. <laughs> I love that. God's desire is not to be glorified as some unknowable, unapproachable deity. What brings him glory is people know him as their father. It's the very heart of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, he says in Isaiah 63, that I want to be a father to the nations. Uh, so that we would have the privileges, as we've already had, as Tim led us in prayer, as we read in the Sermon of the Mount, of being able to begin our prayers with, well, you know the words Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven. What a privilege. That's his purpose. The purpose we've been swept up in is to have people know God as their Father. How? Well, that's the other bit of verse 16. You see the bit in the middle? is what we'll be thinking about over the next couple of weeks. How are they going to see that? Do you see what they see when they see the light? They see your good deeds. That's how we let the light shine. And again, just to keep our pattern going, here's what that doesn't mean, seeing our good deeds. It doesn't mean that our goal in, as a church is to exert some sort of moral superiority over the rest of the world, and the more they see how morally superior we are, the more they will come to God as Father. That doesn't work, does it? 
And it doesn't mean this either. It doesn't mean the goal is to theologically point score amongst each other, so much so that people will come home to God as Father. Again, doesn't work. Nor does it mean being so shiny and impressive and engaging that, well, our display wows the world and they come home to God as Father. Again, uh, we're a pretty ordinary show compared to what's out in the world. Being a shining light is actually more about the source of that light than it is about us. It's becoming like Jesus, the light of the world. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He captures it really well. This is what he says. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all of that into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they don't talk of those things. Everyone there is filled full of what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled full with light. But they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. At its simplest, the way to let the light shine is to line up your life with the king. Uh, verses 17 to 20 that we'll think more about next week simply say this, let the light shine by obeying the king. <laughs> it's that simple. Uh, Ephesians 8, 5, 8 puts it this way. We are to live as children of the light and the way we do that, Ephesians 5 verse 10 says this, by learning what pleases the king and doing it. And I find that so helpful and challenging as I think about living as a light in the world because it means as a Christian, and this is true for me and I suspect for all of us, my default setting is with the light off. My default setting is not to think about what pleases the king and do it, but to think about what pleases myself and do it. What's required to serve the king and to be who we are is to hear his commands and to actually do it. That's what 5.19 says. And as we do it, here's the thing. You can trust him. He's a good king. His ways are good. They lead to life and they lead others home. Uh, put simply, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that, uh, and you're going to see this in small groups as you study the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see what pleases the king so that we can do it. But if you want like the, the shortened version of that, I don't know whether when you were at school um, studying English, when I was at school, they had these things called Cliff's Notes. Anyone remember Cliff's Notes? I shouldn't say I remember those, but uh, basically what it meant is if you didn't want to read the English book, you could just read the Cliff's Notes and get a quick summary and you knew what it was all about and didn't need to read the book. Now they just watch the movie, but that's what we did <laughs> back in the day. Um, if you want the Cliff's Notes, rather than having to read the whole Sermon on the Mount, but I strongly encourage you to do that, um, right near the end of Matthew, he gives us what it means to obey the king really simply. Jesus is challenged by uh, the experts in the law and they say, what's, what's the most important bits of the law? Here's what he says, verse 37 of Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Over these next two weeks, we're going to think about what it would look like for Wurunga Anglican Church to really let the light shine over the next few years. And here's what it will mean. It will mean growing in wholehearted love for God together and growing in humble-hearted service of others. The more we do that, the more people will see that, the more they will see where it comes from, and they will come home to their Heavenly Father. You know, I reckon it was in the end of my first year of high school that I 
uh, had the joy of coming home to God as father and knowing him as father for the first time. I, I can still vividly picture the night service at the church I was at and praying that prayer, praying to my father. But it was the months leading up to it that were crucial. Uh, joining at the start of that year, uh, the youth group at, at the church, he was a group of boys and girls utterly ablaze with his light. Uh, not a perfect group, all of them sinners to a man and a woman. But you know what? Here's the thing that I observed as I started to sort of watch from a distance. They sung with a heart and a hope of a God that they clearly loved. And they served each other like a family because that's what they were. And here I was, uh, a year seven boy, and I saw all of that from a distance. I saw it and it entered my heart. And it was instrumental in me coming home to God as father. And, and I reckon no one there, not a single person there, would have a clue of how instrumental they were in my own coming home to God. But because they were the light and they were shining, I met Jesus and I found home. And so I want to say to you, brother or sister in Christ, don't miss what God is doing through you. In his wisdom, he has chosen you to be his homecoming lights. I don't know who you think you are in this world, what you'd put on your CV or your LinkedIn account, or what you have achieved or hope to achieve, but this is actually who you are. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Well, what a privilege that we can call you that, and it's all because of the mercy of the King. We thank you for your covenant of salt that perseveres and preserves through all the twists and turns of humanity, that the purposes of your heart prevail, and we thank you for our share in that. And we long, Father, to be those who let the light shine, that others may see that and come home to you. In Jesus' name, amen.